Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is chapter 29 of Spielvogel, Protest and Stagnation. And this chapter is pretty much all that. It is also 20 pages, which is very nice because we've been reading a lot of 30-page chapters recently. And so this one, and hopefully this podcast, will be a lot shorter because of it. Um, and this, this whole chapter is basically, um, like the title suggests, a lot of protest and a lot of tension uh, within the Western countries and within the Eastern countries. So if the first chapter of the Cold War was all about uh, sort of the tension between the United States and the Soviet Union, the West and the East, communism and capitalism, democracy and authoritarianism, this is the tension within those two countries. It is going to feature a lot of protesting, a lot of violence, um, and a lot of uh, mass demonstrations across countries to try and push for change. And in the West, that is largely going to be met with peaceful either resistance or peaceful acceptance. Um, legislation is going to get uh, sort of moved through parliaments or legislators or the House and the Senate. Um, or in the Soviet Union and in the Eastern states, that is likely going to be very violent. A violent repression of the people. We saw this in Hungary last chapter the uh, Hungarian Revolution in 1956. We're going to see a lot more of that between the Eastern countries. And so let's jump right into it. So we're going to start with uh, the Western protests, because a lot of uh, the 1970s and 1980s were dominated by protesting, uh, which was normalized in the 1960s with the Civil Rights Era, and a lot more groups looked to the victories in the Civil Rights Era to try and get some victories for themselves. So uh the first big movement that takes place is a protesting of uh, sex and just sort of the, the very conservative views that Western countries had about sex. So after the World Wars, sex was considered far less controversial. Uh, gender equality, uh, which was slowly being protested throughout the 1970s, also included protests uh, of sex and sexual orientation. And just in general, uh, sex becomes a lot less taboo and more people begin to openly discuss it and talk about, uh, you know, what kind of role the government has in um, controlling sex and prostitution, but also um, sort of having these discussions about what is okay and what is not okay. So this first all starts in Sweden. They're the first country to begin uh, sex education in schools. They're also the first country to decriminalize homosexuality. Uh, and across Europe and the United States, um, a lot of states and regions, and then eventually countries, uh, begin to adopt these same measures. We see gay rights protests in California, in Italy, France, and the United Kingdom throughout this time period. Uh, birth control also allows more freedom and experimentation. Um, and cities like Amsterdam, which uh, has sort of always flirted with prostitution and more uh, liberal views of what sex is and what is okay, um, cities like these all across Europe begin to flirt more with legalizing prostitution and also allowing for more, uh, I guess, more taboo, uh, traditionally taboo ways of having sex uh, to take place. Uh, this whole time period is also marred by uh, divorce rates, extramarital sex, and premarital sex, uh, as well as just a rise in uh, sort of sexual tensions and conversations about sex. Uh, in addition, uh, the introduction of Playboy popularizes pornography, and uh, sort of this whole sort of, I guess, sex revolution during this time period uh, takes place. This is kind of a weird thing to talk about, I'm going to be honest. Uh, I... When I started this podcast, I did not think I would be ending up here, but here we are. Um, in addition to this, we have a lot of student protests taking place. Uh, these mostly focus around drugs. In the United States, Nixon's policy of the war on drugs is uh, safe to say pretty unpopular, uh, especially in a lot of colleges with a lot of students uh, using drugs like marijuana and LSD in some instances. And uh, what is uh, sort of very well known from this time period in, in terms of student protest would be the Vietnam War, which was extremely unpopular um, just in general across the United States and the Western, uh, the Western allies, but particularly unpopular among young men who uh, were at risk of being drafted for the war. So uh, sort of a bunch of things lead into this, uh, but I think the biggest thing is that, uh, as we talked about last chapter, 
uh, welfare reform and the cheapening of college helps increase the middle and uh, lower classes of being able to get into colleges. So this leads to overcrowding, uh, people generally being more poor or middle class, and just people who are sort of discontent, discontent with the world. They recognize that uh, the world has a lot of problems because, frankly, they face it. Um, rich people are not super um, liberal and not really interested in sort of tearing down the whole system and uh, rebuilding it from the ground up because, of course, they benefit from a lot of these systems. So when you take a, a poor, younger group of people at a university, uh, they are likely going to be more discontent with the way things are, and they're more willing to use protest, uh, and in some cases, riots, uh, to get their way. And so, uh, you know, students are protesting Vietnam, and they're protesting a lot of these things at colleges, and it becomes a breeding spot for um, how much discontent there is in especially the United States, but across the West. They also protest a lot against capitalism and the rise of consumerism, uh, the consumer-based economy that the United States and Eastern or Western Europe, sorry, uh, was moving towards was deeply uh, sort of troubling to a lot of people. Uh, a consumerist economy is sort of problematic for a lot of people who are certainly uh, poor or just um, not interested in buying all these appliances. And so a lot of people begin to protest against uh, this more this change in capitalism that was taking place. In addition, and to what I alluded to earlier in the the uh, sex protest and sex uh, revolution was the feminist movement. Women begin uh, protesting a lack of legal and political equality. Uh, Betty Friedan uh, publishes her Feminist Mystique. We talked about this in APUSH, which advocates for uh, economic and social equality for women. It sort of basically says that uh, society is built for men and that women need to begin to reform society uh, to sort of uh, make it an even playing ground f uh, for men and women. And she also advocates for passing the Equal Rights Amendment. It is a constitutional amendment for the United States that would grant women the same equality uh, as men uh, in the Constitution. It has not passed, uh, even today, because it's all caught up in the courts, and it's a very long story. Um, and then finally, I'm going to talk about the anti-war protests, which we already kind of talked about with the student protests, but again, the Vietnam War sparks a lot of students to protest the war in the draft, but oftentimes this, backfire, this backfires, and it sort of uh, ramps up the public discourse about this, and conservatives often point towards the the, the crime and the sort of uh, radicalism that is taking place within the in these colleges and institutions and are able to scare a lot of voters to voting for more moderate or sensible candidates, if you will. Uh, this leads to an election uh, within the United States, uh, an election for Richard Nixon, who uh, sort of talks about this need for law and order again. And so Nixon becomes president uh, in part due to the student protests and uh, the, the media drama that gets wrapped up in all these protests. And across Western Europe, you see a, a new rise of conservatism as conservatives in Germany, in the UK, in France increasingly see more and more victories off of these uh, protests across the spectrum. Now we're going to transition into stagnation in the Soviet Union and the repression of the Soviet Union in uh, the Eastern Bloc countries. So last time we left off, Khrushchev had just been kicked out of power of the Soviet Union, and he was replaced by this uh, sort of party loyalist Brezhnev. And because he's a devout party loyalist, uh, he doesn't really look to reform or really notice any of the problems uh, that are leading the Soviet Union to begin to collapse around him. So Brezhnev, he sort of lives by the slogan of no, no experimentation. And so this means basically that he is not going to try uh, to change anything or fix anything, even if he sees a problem, because ultimately, again, he's a party loyalist. He doesn't want to upset uh, sort of the aristocrats who run the country, and he doesn't want to upset the sort of conservative guard, the military and the KGB, who benefit from a lot of these poor systems. And so the Brezhnev years are calm-ish, uh, mostly because there is not a lot of reform, and Brezhnev instead sort of just sits back and lets things happen within the Soviet Union, uh, even if they're not working well. Uh, in addition to this, the Brezhnev years are calm-ish uh, because of detente. Uh, 
uh, sort of detente. It's a French word that just sort of is a de-escalating of tensions at this point. So uh, detente is sort of aimed towards decreasing the temperature in the room, allowing the Cold War to certainly still happen, but without the risk of total global annihilation for everybody. So it is sort of a calming of tensions that uh, just sort of allows the Soviet Union to have some breathing room for recovery and the United States to have some breathing room for recovery. And this just kind of leads to a lessening of, lessening of tensions for a long time. Um, one of the things that does not lessen tensions, though, is the Brezhnev Doctrine, which declares the right for the Soviet Union to intervene in any socialist state uh, that is struggling with socialism. It is the the sort of inverse of the Truman Doctrine. The Truman Doctrine said that the United States will get involved in any state that capitalism is failing in and where, uh, you know, socialists might rise up and, and overthrow the government. The Brezhnev Doctrine the Brezhnev Doctrine is the absolute opposite of this. Uh, they are intent on protecting socialism in uh, the Eastern Bloc countries and around the world. So the Brezhnev Doctrine is sort of a response, 20 years later response, but a response nonetheless to the Truman Doctrine um, that just sort of allows them to intervene and, and uh, sort of stabilize and uh, fight against the containment policies that uh, the Soviet Union had sort of struggled to deal with at this point. So as detente begins, though, the Soviet Union begins to relax a lot of its policies at home. Uh, they're more interested in trying to sort of change things for uh, the better, so they are open up to Western art, music, and fashion, um, which just sort of allows an easing of tensions and allows a lot of cultural influence from the West and the East to begin to cross between the states and just sort of allows the uh, the two sides to get along a little bit better. Um, this is mostly due to the fact that the Soviet Union has about an equal number of nuclear arms to the United States. And so there is sort of this hope that as uh, the two nations grow uh, together in nuclear arms, that neither nation will uh, use those nuclear arms because they are aware of the mutual destruction that both of them could cause. And this basically leads to both of them building up their nuclear stockpile, but hoping they never use it uh, because they know that that is going to be the end of the world. And if you remember from uh, the last podcast, the end of the world is bad. Um, if If you know anything about the world, and if you take anything away from... Um, AP European history, the end of the world is typically bad for humanity. Um, so just remember that. Um, don't end the world. If you ever become the leader of the Soviet Union, I would be very impressed. But don't end the world, because very bad. Uh, now let's talk about the economic problems within the Soviet Union, because there are a ton, and this leads to the Soviet Union basically declining even as their industries begin to grow. So iron, steel, and coal actually even grow to surpass the United States' production at this time period, but the general economy begins to decline, and it declines for a ton of reasons. Uh, the over-centralization of government basically makes uh, so many complex bureaucratic issues within the Soviet Union that they can't really address them, and it sort of encourages a lot of inefficiency just for... Uh, kind of keeping the government running and keeping things as the way as uh, keeping things the way they are right now. Also, the guaranteed employment of everybody creates sort of a lack of incentive for people. Uh, basically, it says that since everybody is going to be employed no matter what, because you always have to work for the state, um, you're not really incentivized to do well. There's no promotion. There's no a sort of hope for a better humanity, a better world, a better life for you, uh, because you have no social mobility. And this leads to a lot of problems like drunkenness, drunkenness, uh, apathy with the world and with the state, and just sort of absentism, or this idea that like you're not going to show up for work all the time, you're not interested in working, because at the end of the day, you don't stand to gain personally from a lot of it. Um, there are also a lot of poor harvests that hurt agriculture in the Soviet standing. They're forced to import grain from the West, from the United States itself, which is, uh, it, it certainly doesn't look good for the Soviet Union to be importing grain from their enemy. 
And Brezhnev also, refor or also refuses to reform the party or the government. Again, he's a party loyalist. He doesn't want to upset people. And so he does nothing, even though he knows the system isn't working. And all of this sort of leads to, uh, by the time of the 1980s, the Soviet Union is slowly beginning to bleed. It's, it's the Ottoman Empire I compared to a, a, the sick man of Europe. It's slowly declining. By the 1980s, the Soviet Union is also slowly declining. It's not going to collapse right away, certainly not for another 10 years. Uh, but the Soviet Union is beginning to slowly uh, sort of bleed out, and the first cracks in the system are beginning to show. It's not a fast uh, decline, and it's not noticeable from day to day, but over time, over these years, you're going to see the cracks in the system getting larger and larger until that dam bursts. Uh, and all of this is basically due to the declining economy. You also see a rise, a rise in infant mortality, a rise in alcoholism, uh, just poor working conditions in general, and a decline in morale among the Soviet people. And when Brezhnev dies in 1982, he's he's replaced by Andropa. Andropa is uh, sort of a... He recognizes that, that, that there are a lot of problems within the Soviet Union, and he wants to um, reform a lot of the Soviet Union, but his health is beginning to decline at this time period. He's quite elderly, and so he sort of recognizes that his time is limited. He's not going to be able to fix the Soviet Union in his lifetime. And so he endorses Gorbachev, this sort of young uh, newcomer to the party who is, sort of represents this new generation of Soviet leaders who recognize the need for reform. And so when he, he, when he endorses Gorbachev, it sort of shoots up his, his, his chances of getting into power uh, when Andropov dies. And by 1985, when Andropov dies, that's literally only three years after Brezhnev's death, Gorbachev comes to power uh, and he begins to sort of seek a lot of reforms during his time period. And that is going to lead us into the next chapter. But we're not talking about that. I promise. I, I pinky promise I'm not going to get distracted. Let's talk about uh, the Eastern Bloc as a whole. So uh, the Eastern Bloc can sort of be divided into two groups at this time period. We have Hungary, Poland, and Czechoslovakia seeking to uh, reform their countries. So Hungary and Poland... Uh, being granted some reforms uh, by the end of the last chapter. Remember, those two countries uh, experience a revolution uh, from the Soviet Union. So they're both able to get some more autonomy from the Soviet Union, and with that autonomy, they give more freedoms to the people, and they begin to move towards a more hybrid economy between uh, communist and capitalism, uh, certainly leaning heavily towards uh, communism in that degree. Uh, but they are allowing for more privatization of the economy and also a less centralized agricultural state. And at the same time period, Czechoslovakia in the Prague Spring uh, tries to get a lot of, of change. They try and break away uh, from the Soviet Union and, and leave the Warsaw Pact for the, the Western alliance. Uh, the people call for a ton of change uh, when the Czechoslovakia just grants them uh, freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And so the people take to the streets in the Prague String, in the Prague, in the Prague Spring, sorry, uh, and they try to basically uh, take the little amount of uh, reform that Czechoslovakia had granted them and turn that into a ton of reform. And the Soviet Union looks at this, and they're not happy. They do not want to see Czechoslovakia leave the Warsaw Pact, uh, overturn its communist government and sort of just like flip to the West overnight. And so the Soviet Union intervenes and suppresses the Prague, string, the Prague Spring. The other half of, the, of Eastern Europe is sort of the old guard. This is seen in Eastern Germany and Romania, who stay loyal to Stalinism and continue to repress their people. So in East Germany, they build the Berlin Wall to keep the people in. They expand the, the Stasi, police to punish dissenters. This also makes them rise to uh, both the most uh, sort of tense, or I guess, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Paranoid state uh, within the within the Eastern Bloc, of course, putting aside the Soviet Union itself. Um, but this also leads to a rise uh, for them being the largest satellite economy of the Eastern Bloc. So Germany even though, you know, it's not doing great, it is still the largest economy aside from the Soviet Union uh, within its within the Warsaw Pact. 
And then, like I said earlier, Romania also represents this. Ceausescu uh, uses the secret police uh, to have basically an iron grip over the country and over the uh, over the people who increasingly begin to call for a lot of changes, which Ceausescu is not interested in giving. So that is Eastern Europe mostly covered by this point. So now let's talk about Western Europe and what happens in West Germany. So voters vote in the Social Democrats, which is the leftist party of Germany. And this leads to Chancellor Brandt and his opening uh, to, the to the East policy. Um, this is sort of an attempt to uh, repair diplomatic relations with East Germany and ultimately just sort of bring the uh, West German people and the East German people together, um, sort of as they always had been for, you know, like the last 80 years of European history. They want to sort of bring this back and uh, have more economic, cultural, and personal relationships between the East and the West. Uh, eventually, Brandt resigns uh, when a spy is caught within his cabinet. Obviously, that is pretty embarrassing to have a Soviet spy within your cabinet and shows kind of a, a poor way of being able to uh, do background checks on people within your cabinet. And so he is sort of forced to resign, although his policies are uh, quite successful in opening up West Germany and East Germany to each other and allowing for uh, the beginning stages of a potential reunification between the two. Uh, he is replaced by Schmidt, who is far more economically focused. He he is able to reduce the German deficit from uh, ten billion mark or ten million marks, sorry, to zero marks, which is uh, very nice. Uh, I mean, shows a lot of economic uh, control and an ability to use surpluses uh, to your advantage. And his coalition also. Um, reduces welfare spending, which actually costs them uh, their election, their coalition completely breaks down, uh, and they lose their majority uh, in reducing welfare. So while pretty economically focused, uh, not very smart about being able to keep your, your party intact during this time period. So let's move on now to Thatcher in Great Britain. So Thatcher represents this sort of move away, sort of like Ronald Reagan, this move away from the liberal a welfare state uh, that the in the United States the New Deal Democrats had proposed and in Britain the Labour Party had proposed. So between 1964 and 1979, Labour and Conservative parties are able to alternate, uh, alternate power. Neither of them, however, can solve the uh, Irish terrorist attacks against uh, sort of the, the British in Northern Ireland and the border crossing. So, uh, you know, Ireland sort of always seems to flare up for uh, times of stagnation or just sort of when things begin going well. For the UK, the Irish uh, ear, uh, the Irish sort of poke up and begin to uh, make it known that things are not going well on the island. And in fairness, they're not. Uh, the Irish people would like to see uh, Ireland reunited during this time period. And the UK doesn't really have a response to that. So neither of these governments are able to solve uh, the problem of Irish terrorism on the border, nor are they able to fix the economic issues that faced uh, sort of a lack of modernization. During World War II, uh, the United Kingdom had faced, uh, obviously, the Nazis, but it had also faced a lot of stagnation in that the entire nation needed to use its resources towards fighting the Nazis. And so a lot of their economic power and a lot of their sort of modern industry fell behind that of the United States, the Soviet Union, and countries like Japan, and just former colonies in mostly South America. So a lot of the power that the, that the UK had before World War II had evaporated by the end of World War II. And this leads to a pretty massive unemployment, wages fall during this time period, and uh, massive countrywide strikes begin to take place, as well as violence between unions, rival unions begin to pop up. So it's a real mess uh, from 1964 to 1979. Uh, but after the economy worsens and the Labour Party is sort of... Uh, 
shown to be ineffective at helping the economy, Thatcher is elected. And she is the first woman to serve as prime minister in the UK. And her plans are, are pretty large. She wants to lower taxes. She wants to reduce the government's uh, spending on uh, social welfare. She wants to restrict unions. And she also wants to end inflation. And she's able to get some of those things done. She's able to control the unions and get inflation down but she's unable to limit social welfare. And this kind of goes back to, even in the United States, and especially in the UK, uh, that no matter if you are a conservative or a liberal, you can't touch uh, social welfare spending. You can't touch things like Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. You can't uh, touch uh, socialized medicine, or you can't really touch all these uh, you know, social welfare benefits because the voters, no matter how conservative or liberal they are, ultimately just want their lives to be better. And oftentimes, um, you know, the government uh, providing cheaper goods like college tuition or private or uh, public public medicine is just not going to fly with a lot of voters. And so, uh, ultimately, Thatcher, unlike uh, her her colleagues in West Germany, uh, do not touch social welfare and cannot. Uh, sort of fall apart because of it. Uh, Thatcherism proves very successful, uh, but it comes at a price. The Midlands and the North see decline in jobs and economic growth, and also cuts to education uh, seriously begin to hurt uh, students and the education in the UK. The sort of education system within the UK had been deemed as one of the best in the world, uh, really a fantastic public education system. Uh, Thatcher has to cut that, though, to try and balance the budget and bring down inflation. And so, um, as a result, a lot of uh, the education, uh, a lot of the pride in the British education system begins to uh, get seriously cut back as well. In foreign policy, Thatcher takes a pretty strong approach, much like Reagan. She hardlines the Soviets and communism. Uh, she sees a large military buildup of uh, the UK. And she also fights the Falkland War to sort of, quote, preserve the empire, uh, if the British Empire at this point even really exists. Um, so the Falkland Islands are right off the coast of Argentina. Argentina wants it to be their islands. The UK wants, it, uh, wants to keep these islands because they're the UK. I mean... Can you really blame them? They're willing to die for uh, any random island, uh, uh, you know, halfway across the world. And so Thatcher and her public approval ratings kind of go up as she's seen as preserving this great empire, even if it is just the tiny little Falkland Islands and the, I don't know, the 6,000 sheep that live on it. So, uh, you know... I think uh, Thatcher gets a little bit more credit for, quote, preserving an empire um, than probably she deserves. Moving on to France, we get socialism, uh, which is uh, very much the opposite of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, so socialists in France win in 1981 and begin enacting a lot of change. They freeze uh, prices and wages to reduce the budget and inflation. They increase the minimum wage. They increase social spending on welfare. They increase the number of paid vacation uh, people get. They decrease work hours to uh, a 39-hour work week, and they raise taxes on the rich to help pay for all of this. They also nationalize the steel uh, the steel industry, the banks, the space and electronics industry, and the insurance industry. Uh, but that specific um, sort of nationalization of these industries actually proves to be quite unpopular with the French people, and they're forced to reprivatize these industries again uh, by the uh, by the time their next election comes, so that they can win this election. So uh, they go back on a few of their policies, but overall, uh, they are able to fight on behalf of the voters and uh, fight on behalf of the unions for better pay, uh, less time, and better benefits for their jobs. In Italy, and this is going to surprise you, their politics is on fire and it's very unstable. Uh, just about everybody becomes prime minister, is what I say. Uh, their government collapses very quickly. Um, even the communists are able to win and become prime minister for just a little bit of time. Uh, basically, Italy suffers from a sort of a rise of uh, the mafia and also a rise in oil prices that just sort of resorts to Irish, or not Irish, uh, Italian politics becoming uh, very destabilized and just in general uh, a 
complete mess for pretty much everybody, and especially the Italian people who want to see something get done. So Italy, very unstable during this time period, like they had been for, uh, I think, like the past 200 years. I'm pretty sure every time I bring up po Italian politics, uh, we talk about how unstable it is and how uh, governments are constantly collapsing. And then finally, let's talk about the European community. And the European community, which will eventually evolve into the EU, begins to expand. They expand in uh, 1947. They add the UK, Ireland, and Denmark all at once. Greece joins in 1981, and Spain and Portugal join in uh, 1986. Sorry. The expanding of the European community at this point gives them more power diplomatically and economically. The elimination of tariffs and customs benefits the economies of all of these countries. And just in general, uh, as the European community grows more and more, they're able to increasingly show unity against the Soviet Union and communism and sort of uh, being able to support themselves and, and ward off uh, the, quote, evils of communism as they would uh, as they would see it. Um, just in general, gives a boost in morale and helps elevate a lot of these smaller states that would not have the power. You know, Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands would not have the same amount of power uh, that they would have if they were not in such a large economic alliance. Now, let's talk about everybody's favorite French word, détente. So, moving to China, um, Mao sort of during this time period, is uh, creating an atmosphere for revolution and war. He sort of creates this great proletarian uh, cultural revolution in which uh, his Red Guards eliminate capitalist tendencies and just sort of uh, use violence and prolonged uh, conflict to basically rip down any symbol of capitalism or the old way or the old Chinese government. Uh, it's just, it's, it's in general quite violent and uh, sort of breaks from uh, Stalinism. And this creates the Sino-Soviet split in which uh, China and the Soviet Union are sort of unable to agree on their common goals of, of communism. The Soviet Union is content on more staying where it is, uh, you know, keeping communism in the Eastern Bloc and in uh, the USSR stable. Uh, China's more interested in expanding that and uh, extending this uh, Marxist revolution outwards. And so this creates the Sino-Soviet split, where both countries basically uh, are no longer liking each other. And so in detente, uh, Nixon visits China. His uh, visit to China is very successful and helps rebuild uh, relations between the United States and China. And this basically allows uh, Nixon to get... Uh, China as sort of an ally, which is it's weird to say because China is communist and you'd expect them to be um, sort of uh, supporting the communists in the Soviet Union, but instead they create a strategic alliance against the Soviet Union uh, to sort of build this, this coalition. Uh, even if China is itself communist, they're still not happy with the version of communism that is taking place within the Soviet Union. And they also have territorial claims on what uh, the Soviet Union owns in Siberia. And so those two things sort of help convince China to uh, sort of join the Western allies, even if they are communists themselves. So, interesting. <laughs> um, so, essentially, during detente uh, as a whole... Like I said before, relations are cooled. This allows uh, some treaties to begin getting signed. So the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty is signed, which, which limits the chance of one's uh, preemptive strike. Basically, it um, sort of limits how far these rockets are able to go, and uh, this essentially limits the potential of one state firing uh, missiles from far away as a preemptive strike to try and knock the knock each other out. So uh, the signing of this treaty basically sort of is a step towards peace and a step towards not ending the world, which again, bad, ending the world bad. We've gone over this. I'm not going to keep repeating this. Um, they also signed the Helsinki Accords, which is far, far um, of greater importance. The Helsinki Accords recognized the borders uh, established in World War II or established after World, for, World, World War II. <laughs> 
I don't think they would uh they'd recognize the borders within World War II. But um, the Helsinki Accords basically uh, create a a stability in Europe that the Soviet Union and the United States are not going to try and get involved to change the borders of Europe again. They're not going to try to like you know topple their each other's regimes. Uh, the borders as they are are uh, established in sort of forever. And they won't be forever, uh, but the Helsinki Treaty is a step towards creating stability and sort of avoiding conflict. That uh, territorial ambitions are not going to, like the, like they did in World War II, set off this powder keg that explodes into, uh, you know, a, a horrific war that maybe ends the world. Uh, however, detente is not all great, and it's not perfect. Um, Carter hopes to continue detente and uh, continue to focus on human rights. It's big part of his campaign. Uh, he signs the Camp David Accords because he's so interested uh, in human rights and protecting uh, protecting Israel and Egypt from each other. Um, but the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan ends uh, detente. The United States cancels its grain trade uh, to the Soviet Union that it was, uh, that the Soviet Union kind of really needed. Um, and the U.S. also boycotts the Olympic Games in Moscow. And Moscow decides to boycott the Olympic Games in L.A. Uh, two years later. Reagan escalates uh, the Cold War uh, in his early administration. He calls the Soviet Union an evil empire and restarts the arms race, uh, which raises the military spending in both countries. Uh, that is one of the reasons the Soviet Union actually collapses, by the way, because um, they spend all this money on the arms race. And so uh, they actually uh, can't spend as much money making sure their people are, 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 you know, healthy and alive. And so this creates a lot of instability because, as we've seen throughout European history, hungry peasants will revolt and they will, more often than you would, would expect, uh, win that revolt. They will bring down the regime. They will bring down uh, the ideology uh, that is hurting them so. Um, and sort of finally, Reagan also begins to arm the Afghan resistance within Afghanistan and expands this war into sort of a, this idea of a religious war, which is, by the way, why the United States has uh, funded al-Qaeda in its past. The Reagan administration uh, funded al-Qaeda to fight against the Soviet Union, which definitely, and trust me on this one, didn't ever come back to hurt us. <laughs> Additionally, throughout the Cold War, science and technology are heavily invested in um, because science becomes a lot more complex and the government needs to begin funding uh, their own projects because uh, basically private industries can't afford to take these massive risks on things like Take, for example, the, the space race, the Soviets uh, launching Sputnik, and the U.S. funding NASA. They could not be done privately. Like, these companies could not afford to just one day decide to put a man on the moon, just develop this brand new technology to uh, launch a, a rocket into space just because we could. Um, you know, it just it can't be done uh, privately, and so public companies like NASA uh, need to be funded by uh, the government to help um, you know, build more and more uh, scientific progress for humanity as a whole. And so I already talked about the space race, the launch of uh, Sputnik and uh, the Explorer 1 rocket, and then the Apollo missions. Uh, all of that, of course, deepens our understanding of space and uh, sort of uh, the moon itself. The creation of the microprocessor also makes computers far more compact. That is, as you can imagine today, extremely important. Uh, computers no longer take up an entire room like they did during World War II. Instead, uh, I've got one sitting right next to me on the couch. And so uh, the creation of the microprocessor in the United States uh, helps uh, sort of launch computers as, a, as an individual thing. They don't need to be government databases, and they don't need to be like, you know, these rich companies that need high processing. Uh, you know, your average American or average uh, European could own a computer now and afford to have it in, its ho in their household and use it for, uh, you know, for anything, really. I mean, the computer is uh, probably the revolutionary thing of the 21st century. Uh, and it's that revolution sort of begins at the microprocessor in the 20th century. Uh, f physicists also begin to build on Einstein's theory of relativity and space and time and that whole mess. Uh, again, 
I talked about this in the Scientific Revolution uh, podcast. Not my job to explain these things. I am not a science person. Um, but essentially, the physicists begin to build on Einstein's theories. But sort of the hallmark of this time period is that innovations and um, a lot of economic growth also begin to hurt the environment, too. And this creates a green movement. So across the world, ecological problems surface as econo as economies begin to expand, and especially with factories and pollution, uh, a lot of lack of government regulations begin to take a toll on people and the and the 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 earth around them. So pollution from factories, cars, and power plants uh, begin to uh, see a rise in things like cardiovascular disease and just in general air pollution, especially in uh, cities like L.A. or in New York. If you go back even 30 years ago, those cities and their smog were, were horrible. They were creating uh, massive respiratory issues for uh, pretty much everybody living within them. In addition, dying forests and endangered species catch the eye of a lot of people who, uh, of course, have compassion for these uh, places. The Chernobyl disaster and the radiation poisoning of a Ukrainian town uh, completely uh, sort of shifts our view on nuclear power and whether nuclear power is safe how nuclear power should be harnessed better harnessed better in the future and it also sort of shows that humans can build up these great things like nuclear energy and learn how to split the atom but if it goes poorly we can destroy and completely like radiate this entire town making it uh you know inhabitable for so many people and so across europe and the united states green parties uh, start local and begin to grow into national movements they are mostly successful in places like uh, sweden austria switzerland and uh, west germany however uh, just because uh, Green parties, like in the United States, the Green Party is not very strong. Just because they don't win doesn't mean that a lot of their policies don't get implemented. In fact, uh, the growth of the Green Party in the United States uh, can also be seen in the growth of the Green Movement in the Republican Party during this time period. It was, after all, Richard Nixon who signed uh, the Clear Air and Water Act and created the uh, Environmental Just or the Environmental Protection Agency, and so. Just because green parties don't win across Europe doesn't mean that a lot of their policies aren't co-opted uh, by the larger parties across Europe. So, uh, sort of the development of science and technology during this time period also begins to expose that a lot of the ecological benefits of uh, science and technology were not happening um, and humanity was slowly damaging the planet and the the other animals living on it and so a, a counter-revolution to this begins with the Green Party movements. And then finally let's wrap up with uh, the culture that develops throughout this time period. So starting with art, art becomes far more um, based on audiences perspective. Uh, art just in general, becomes a lot less sort of bougie. It is consumed more by the masses, and this is mostly due uh, to the fact that art is becoming more uh, sort of part of the real world. It is uh, developing in the real world. You think of like the rise of social media and posting things online. Uh, of course, that's sort of beginning in this time period, um, but also important to the rise of art becoming more uh, sort of generalized for the general public is the rise of museums. Museums receive a lot of funding from governments to help support art and just sort of make sure art can be viewed by everybody. And so between those two things uh, and just sort of the, the spread of the internet and the uh, spread of TV during this time period, uh, just art is going to be placed uh, in front of people more often and, and be developed by a more general audience during this time period. Uh, in addition to the like, what you would traditionally think of art, ar architecture also begins to blend the ancient and the modern ways to sort of create this uh, sort of hybrid model of both uh, sort of the the beauty and elegance of ancient art. Uh, think of like Greece and Rome with more modern forms of architecture. So using more modern materials like steel and concrete to create a beautiful looking, beautiful looking uh, buildings and, and pieces, uh, but in a more functional and in a more uh, sturdy manner. 
and then also we have the development of photorealists also beginning to rise as realism returns. Uh, so a, a sort of decline in abstract art, art takes place and photorealists try and, as you would sort of guess by the name, uh, create realism to the point of believing that it's not art, but instead it is literally a photo taken uh, in sort of an instant. So uh, it's it's more painted or sculpted in an extremely realistic way. Uh, and I think it sort of reflects the a return of normalcy and politics, especially during detente, this hope of, like, things can get better. And, like, as the Cold War developed, abstract art developed as well. I think as the Cold War begins to die out, uh, abstract art also begins to to slowly uh, sort of decrease throughout this time period as well. Of course, it's not completely gone. Even today, it's not completely gone. Um, but sort of a sense of uh, lessened tensions and, and a hope that peace can come out of the Cold War uh, begins to return to art. Uh, for literature, magical realism also develops as sort of a realistic way of seeing the world and seeing magic and fantasy blended together. So it comments on cultures and religions and just this idea of truth, how truth is sort of a perspective, and how... Um, you know, take Harry Potter, for example, you know, probably the the pinnacle of uh, magical realism as a genre. It is sort of like it is accepted as normal for the magic to take place. Um, people don't really see the magic as strange or they don't really question it because it's so ingrained in their society. And so a lot of people uh, sort of see this as a, a comment on a perspective, how, how the truth can be uh, so you can be in on the truth or outside of the truth, and culture sort of develops around that truth. How, um, you know, if you're introduced to this new culture without um, without the norms that your old culture had, you can sort of feel like things are magical or things are, 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 are not normal. And as the world at this time period begins to globalize and people begin seeing these other cultures and perspectives, uh, it can often feel the same way. You You look at another uh, culture and you don't think like you know it's wrong or it needs to be purified but you do think it is it's it's different it's unique it it's 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 very different to your own culture and that creates this uh it, it can be seen in this literature in the same way for music a lot of the same happens serialism begins to develop during this time period musicians basically predetermine rhythm or pitch or loudness to sort of confine them to create different music different types of music different styles of musics uh, minimalism also begins to develop it's a more slower repeated type of music that doesn't see a lot of like drastic changes in the sound or, or the pitch, but it slowly begins to develop over a long period of time, and it blends classical and modern music in a, in a really nice way. Um, as for pop culture, we talked about the Americanization of the world uh, in the last uh, in the last chapter, that continues even into this chapter, rock and roll experiences a golden age. Uh, basically, experimentation blends sort of hybrids of cultures and, and, and different types of, of rock and roll. Rock and roll blends with jazz and with the blues and with all these different types of things. Uh, it also comments uh, increasingly on uh, sort of an anti-Vietnam sentiment and an anti-materialist sentiment. This is sort of where we get like the phrase love, uh, peace and love, um, or make love not war, where rock and roll is sort of this escape for sort of a, a, a new generation of students who protest uh, the war and uh, capitalism and uh, the war on drugs. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for punk rock, it also develops and sort of quickly burns out. It's more radical and it rejects the calmness uh, that rock and roll has. It's, uh, you know, punk rock, you can probably get a picture in your head, it has a lot of tattoos and piercings, reggae clothings, et cetera. Uh, just people sort of rejecting um, sort of social acceptability of, of what your body should look like, how you should dress, uh, how you should express yourself. It's it's very loud. Uh, and that sort of lends itself to a, a very quick die because punk rock is very extreme. It's a burst of energy. And much like punk rock, uh, the, the history of punk rock is just that. It's a burst. And then it kind of just like slowly dies off. And, and it's still around today, uh, but to a much lesser extent than it was uh, during this time period. 
TV also begins to develop um, sort of pop culture. It, it spreads different cultures around the world, um, and it also makes people far more famous. So Michael Jackson, of course, is popularized for his taking, his blending of art and dance into his music. The blending of art and dance with the TV uh, sort of creates this new genre, or the, I guess this new this new part of music, which is uh, the 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 visible element of the music now. Um, and also new technology like synths and electronics replace traditional instru instruments like the piano and the guitar for a lot of songs. Um, additionally, rap and hip-hop emerge from New York City. Again, New York City is the cultural capital of the Western world, and this also begins to comment on issues within urban life. And obviously, uh, rap and hip-hop uh, have continued to grow th throughout our, you know, our own lifetime, and it's a very urban sort of genre of music where um, it's quite diverse in its in its musicians, and it's also quite diverse in the issues it focuses on. But one of the one of the most common things between all of it is that it is oftentimes uh, both recorded and uh, comments on urban life and uh, the life of people, mostly in the West, uh, who live in urban cities. Uh, for mass sports, TV and electronics help them also spread global. The Olympics and the World Cup uh, become sort of uh, global phenomenons um, where people of all different types of cultures and all different backgrounds begin to watch them and root for their own countries. This creates uh, this creates a lot of things. Athletes become celebrities, of course, and also watching sports becomes far more easy for people. It becomes, uh, you know, basically like the most popular pastime uh, for Americans is to watch is to watch a sport on the weekend in Saturday or Sunday. Also, sports become sort of mixed with politics. The World Cup highlights national rivalries between different nations. Uh, six nations withdraw after the Hungarian uprising in the World Cup. 27 African nations boycott uh, the Munich Olympics because of South Africa's apartheid. The U.S. boycotts the, Mas the Moscow Games after their invasion of Afghanistan and uh, the Soviet Union boycotts the LA games in response to that. And the beginning of globalization is sort of seen as uh, all these cultures and different backgrounds unite uh, into the sport. And sort of, again, the mixing of politics and cultures and backgrounds all into sports becomes uh, sort of very hyped up. The nationalistic rivalries between people are hyped up during this time period. And oftentimes, um, the Olympics does a really nice job of finding the worst place to hold the Olympics for that time period. You know, uh, having them in the Soviet Union or the United States during uh, con contentious times between the United States and the Soviet Union uh, does not um, sort of uh, de-escalate the tension of the world. Um, and that's pretty much it, to be honest. Again, this chapter, only 20 pages, so uh, I actually got this episode cranked out pretty quickly, which is very nice, and I'm sure it's very nice uh, for you not to have to listen for so long either, because uh, my voice is annoying. I get that. <laughs> um, but, you know, beyond my voice being annoying, I do hope that this was useful, and I do hope that you, you learned a lot from this episode, and I hope you come back for the last uh, episode of Spielvogel, where we talk about contemporary history, uh, something I am far more better suited uh, than... I... where we talk about contemporary history, and we celebrate the end of Spielvogel chapters. Yay! So, I hope to see you there. <laughs>